0: Hey, gang. Welcome back to the Go Time Podcast. Um, This uh, episode, I've got Dale Comstock. Um, And like the list of accomplishments that this guy has done is, um, man, you you can't deny a a life well-lived and that has, um, man, has accomplished a lot of things. Um, He was, I had to write them all down. I can't even imagine remembering them all, but Um, He was a U.S. Delta Force operator for 10 years, Green Beret, paramilitary contractor, combat tours in Grenada, Panama, Iraq, Somalia, and Afghanistan. He's got a doctor's degree in natural health, master's in business, and he's been a professor, public speaker, a pro boxer, bodybuilder, black belt in jujitsu, author of the book, American Badass, a uh, canine trader, trainer, and as of recent, a uh, leadership coach. Man, um, you know, and I think Dale is a little bit of a, uh, it could be a controversial uh, person because <laughs> he's pretty well straightforward and to the point on what he says and how he feels about stuff. And you got to respect somebody like that. Not only respect him for what he says, but you, you have to respect him for what he's done more than anything else. Um, What this guy has not only sacrificed in getting to do what he's done for a living and what his service has been, but you have to respect him for what he's sacrificed, home life and everything else to do the things that he's done. My question to him, the thing that I really wanted to know, so I really wanted to know what is it that a guy like him fights for? What makes, him, what makes him take on the role? You know, it's the same role that we see in first responders and everything, right? And I think it's an important question to ask. It's probably a, po- a really important question to ask the young people nowadays um, is finding out what it really means to them to be an American. You know, you can do a lot of stuff. Um, you can do a lot of tough stuff. You can be a police officer on the streets of America now. You can be an EMT. You can be a firefighter. You can be, um, you can be the Green Beret going out and, and doing things in the world. But you can't do those jobs without having an understanding for the quality of life. And you can't do and fulfill those duties and as a job without a greater understanding of something greater than yourself. Um, There has to be purpose in what you do and it has to make sense. If not, there's no reason to take a bullet for somebody else. You can't do that job without understanding there's value in life. And that's something that America stood for. And I wanted to get that out of Dale. I wanted to talk to him about What what does it mean to be an American to him? Someone who has, uh, being an American meant a lot, right? Meant enough that um, uh, one of his details is secret service. And so if you're secret service, like you've got to think that, that who you're defending and who you're fighting for has more value than what your life is. And same thing that I would look at if I was defending my family. I would jump in front of, anything in order to save my, my wife or my children, because I, I value their life more than I do my own. That's something you have to consider when you're dealing with guys that are our frontline first line responders and guys that have done some of the things that uh, Dale's done is they have to have a strong sense of what's right and wrong. Um, and so that's what we explored with Dale. Um, he's got uh, some strong opinions. I like a lot of his opinions. Um, and and we get to talk about him, not just you know, a blanket, you know, I think this or I think that, but you know, getting in and delving in a little bit to purpose behind it. Um, I really enjoy this one, man, and I respect men who are men are and are all unapologetic for what they believe. You don't have to agree um on everything. Um, but it's worth a listen. If you disagree, you should at least understand where it comes from. And uh, and that's how you become educated uh, on, on on other people's views is to actually listen to them and see where they come from because everybody has a different life experience and it can help you grow and have you better understand even to argue your own point if that happens to be it. Um, so hope you enjoy it i really did um there's two segments to this and uh some great stuff on both um dale's a lot of fun to talk to so here you go or here we go because it's go time
1: welcome to the go time podcast go time podcast
0: with your host todd martin I think one of the things that we talked about last time that I thought was probably the most, I don't know. I mean, there was a whole lot of stuff and, but you know, that there was, that was probably the most impactful I thought was, um, and I I guess pertinent for nowadays too, is gosh, what it was like growing up and what's your motivation for, and, and what it means like, I don't know, we're on the heels of 4th of July. And what does it mean, what does it mean to you being, to, to be an American? You, you grew up in different areas. You spent a good portion of your lives, your life outside of, you know, the U.S. Um, But growing up, you know, your dad was in the military, being around in the military and everything else, you know, there was just, uh, and, and me too, like growing up and, you know, I grew up in South Texas and, you know, we grew up, you know, you, 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 it was just a different feeling growing up as an american than what i'm feeling with you know and i'm trying to recreate with my kids but um, you know what was that what did it what was it like to you what you can't go into the kind of stuff that you've done over the years and not have a feeling and an understanding of right from wrong where do, what gets you that what gives you that motivation what does being an american mean to you
1: well, so i was fortunate enough To be born into the military culture because my father was in the army um, when I was born. He spent 20 years in service, so my entire youth growing up, all the way through high school, was living in uh, at military installations in Germany and across the United States. That's all I knew. That was my culture. Uh, We lived on bases. We lived in government housing. We went to government schools. Um, Everything was, you know, my life was the U.S. Army. And so uh, I think we talked about this before, where, you know, the, the difference, like, for example, there is a huge difference between the military culture and the civilian culture. And so growing up in the military, for example, you know, at five o'clock when, you know, they, you know, they play retreat for the flag, they lower the flag on any concern when it when the horn blows, the bugle blows, you know, even cars that are moving, they have to stop you know, the servicemen get out and women get out and they render salute while the flag and you know, while the bugle's playing. And even we as kids were in doctor, inculcated in that, I won't say indoctrinated, but inculcated in that mindset. So we would get out put our hands on our on our, on our heart. My, I remember my friends and I playing football all the time, street football. All of a sudden, five o'clock came around, the bugle played. We just stopped and we'd face the, we'd face the bugle, the flag, wherever it was, the bugle, and put our hands over our heart. When we went to the movie theaters on, for, on, the, on post, uh, before the movie actually showed, um, they would play the national anthem for, you know, video of the waving flag, and everybody in the movie theater would stand up and render respect to the uh, national anthem, to the flag. So that's the culture I grew up in. Uh, you know, as a young kid, man, you know, me and all my friends, um we would borrow our father's t-850 you know our military their military gear helmets and low-bearing equipment and uh and our dads didn't have a problem with that you know we and we'd go out and play army you know uh we shoot each other with bb guns and stuff like that you know we made you know we used to make uh we used to make mortars out of uh, back in the day so they didn't have aluminum can they used steel cans like coca-cola and stuff like that. so it's a hard can and uh, we cut the bottoms out and then basically tape them all together into a tube, and then in the bottom we uh, we put a, uh, a small hole in the last can. We we'll make it a little reservoir, put rubbing alcohol in it, and then we drop tennis balls. And we had borders, we launched borders at each other, right? Pretty pretty badass.
0: Uh, we did the same thing with potato guns. You ever made a yeah. potato gun? Yeah, yeah. So no. you
1: know, so you know, that's how I grew up. Always grew up playing army, you know. We learned discipline, we, you know, we learned to respect our country, we, re- we learn to respect the flag. <clears throat> um, and it was a different time. And you know, as I told you mentioned to you before another conversation, you know, after my father retired from Fort Huachuca, Arizona, we moved to uh, Menlo Memo Park, San Francisco, or California in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh and suddenly I'm now been taken away from the military culture and now i've been immersed into a civilian culture civilian high school and it was a culture shock for me one that i could not assimilate to I had a very hard time adapting to it um uh, i don't know why but i just did it was it just didn't feel the same the kids didn't feel the same you know uh, and that was a long time ago i mean when you look at my age now but uh you know nothing happens overnight especially when you know, our society changed. It's a slow, gradual, almost insidious process. Um, here yeah. we are. So, you know, that's what prompted me to go into the military as soon as I could. I mean, I was in the military. I signed up um, at the beginning of my senior year, knowing that when I graduate, that's where I'm going. I couldn't wait. At to the
0: go. begin at the beginning of your senior year.
1: Yeah, man. I could not wait to go, man. I got on what's called the delayed entry program. And so, uh-huh. um, yeah. Oh, my God, man. So, you know, it only... You know, it was only logical for me to do that. Nothing else seemed to fit me. And so it's been a, um, you know, it's, so after I got out of the military, retired from the military, and, you know, came to corporate America, now became a civilian, I can honestly say I really, I'd still fish out of water, but i have become a chameleon in another way, right? So um, fish, chameleons, fish, lizards. But uh, what I've learned how to do is blend in so to speak, right? So um, that's what I've had to learn how to do, how to blend in and adapt and camouflage myself with with civilians out here because they do think differently, um, different work ethic, um, sometimes just amazed like, man, you know, how does the whole world make any kind of progress as slow as they move the decision-making process is ridiculously, you know I mean? It's like it takes two weeks to a month for anybody to make a simple decision, literally, whereas the military, it was on the spot. You know, things got done, and that was a whole culture shock for me. But I kind of got, I'm getting a little uh, attracted from the original question. So what is my, how do I feel about, you know, now we're, we're actually just now coming out of the 4th of July. And I got to tell you, um, you know, Sadly, in the last few years, um, you know, I would say probably starting in the Obama era and Hillary Clinton era um, as they were vying for running for president, and I started to see, you know, there's always been a shared paradigm shift in our country. It's been slow and insidious, you know, um, you know, nobody really paid attention to it, but it was actually happening. And then it started to accelerate around their era, and uh, and I and I saw the writing on the wall, as did many people like me, as did a lot of veterans, a lot of conservatives. And, uh, and suddenly today we're in a place where I don't recognize this country. Um, I mean, I don't recognize it as for what it was. What I see now is totally obscene, foreign. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you, uh, here I am a veteran. I've spent... Thirty years for the United States government, okay, fighting literally fighting for this country, literally fighting at close range, you know, within the feet of my of our adversaries, shooting them in the face on behalf of this country. I have lost a lot of friends um, on fighting on behalf of this country, and now I look back, I'm like, what was it all for? Mm. Because we've given this country away to the enemies within. And we let the enemies without manipulate the, our, these tools within, and so we're fighting a battle on many fronts within our country and outside our country. Um, we're fighting. A, we're fighting other Americans, and I and I, I have to bite my tongue when I say these. They call the others Americans because, in fact, they're not. They're pseudo Americans at like best. Um, they're parasites. They live in the country. They live. They live off the host. But they contribute nothing until they kill the host, um, and that's how I see it. So, you know, uh, you know, so you know, I don't have to go over all the stuff that's happening in our country right now. Yeah. Uh, as a veteran, I will tell you, you know, there was a time when, you know, I even when I wrote my book, American Badass. Okay, the reason I wrote the book, American Badass, um, was during, during twenty twelve. Um, I published it on the fourth of July. And I actually voted because I was friends with Chris Kyle, the American Sniper. And I actually didn't know he wrote the book, American Sniper. And I looked at it, I go, wow, man, pretty impressive. I didn't know he wrote the book, you know. As we got to chatting, he's like, you know, it was, I want to read your book. I want to to be like you because he was 32 at the time, you know, and I was like, 48 years old. And uh, and I already had, you know, entertained the idea of writing an autobiography. And when he said that, it just kind of drove it home for me. I literally turned around. I picked up my cell phone, called my management team, said, I want to write a book. But I said, although it's going to be an autobiography, and this makes sound a little weird, I said, I don't want it to be just about me. I want it to be about everybody. And particularly what I wanted to do was motivate young men, young men to be men. Okay. Because at that time, I'm looking around going, what is going on with the young men in America? I mean, these guys are a bunch of pansies. They don't want to go outside in the rain because their hair might get wet. You know, and uh, you know they can't get off the couch. They play all these game video games. They're coming fat and lazy and sorry. And uh, and I've actually seen that in combat. I've seen that in combat. I've seen the product of what America has produced on the battlefield. Um, that's a that's a whole other story in itself. But basically, um, it was scary to see an infantry platoon sitting in the shade with the gear off during a firefight. While wow, 500 meters to the front was a, a Mrap with American casualties laying there bleeding out and dying. And these guys wouldn't go up and help them because it was too hot, hot. Not hot like in a firefight, but hot in the weather. And uh, and so my guys had to go out, my my guys, my Afghans had to go out, We recover these Americans and triage them and, and apply medical care to them while the American medics watched these young kids. So, you know, that was an indicator that we're, we're in a bad place. Um, now, I'm not saying all kids or all young men are like that or all soldiers are like that, but uh, there's, it's getting bad. It's getting, it's getting huge. When I see a whole platoon sitting on their ass, uh, you know, I, I, I could expect one guy to go, mass too hot, but not everybody. You know, that's, I mean, it's immoral, it's unethical. Who does that kind of shit? So, this is what our nation has produced, right? We've coddled these guys. um, You know, we, you know, it probably started with Dr. Spock, you know, and this bullshit about, you know, not spanking your kids and this and that and that, you know. (laughs) And we have basically emasculated young men um, before they even grow up to be men. So they grow up to be these pansy ass beta males, right? Um, So that's why I wrote the book. But, you know, so so I used to encourage young men to join the military. In fact, they used to come to my home in Florida from traveling around the country, come and spend a weekend with me um, to learn about firearms, about military life, culture, you know, everything. They they wanted to to talk to me about that. And I would motivate these guys, coach them, train them, teach them things. And I've sent many of them off to the military to become everything from Green Berets and Marines to Rangers on the SEALs. And uh, I don't do that no more. I actually had a kid call me the other day from San Jose, California, and he's like, Hey, I'm really interested in joining in the military. Um, I want to be like you. I want to go to Delta Forces, Special Forces. And, uh, you know, can you, you know, give me some guidance? And, uh, and you know, and I, I I sat there and I thought about it and I thought about it and I was like, You know, I got to be true to myself. Uh, as much as I want this kid to uh, have a good life and join the military because Um, you know, I did, and I got a lot out of it. Um, I had to tell the kid, listen, dude, I said, go to school. I said, create a business, all right? Become your own boss, you know, become a sovereign man and don't join the military. I said, because it sounds all cool stuff now. It's not the same military. Why? Well, think about this. Think about the country you're going to be fighting for. Think about this administration. Okay. Um, you know, we're, it's basically, we have become a, literally, we are becoming a socialist country. You know, the, the only difference between socialism and communism is on socialism, we freely give up our freedom, you know? And communism, the government just goes ahead and takes away from takes us, it. you know? And yeah. so, you know, we're, we're right there, man. And- uh,
0: Well, so I I, I got it. I, that leads me into a question. I, I wonder, like, um, so- you've done all the things that you've done through special forces and green beret and and writing books and being in movies and TV and all that stuff. Right. And, and, um, and now you're doing leadership coaching and that kind of stuff. And so like all that stuff circles back around to leadership and, and leadership, I, 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 think leadership is such is one of those things that I think is one of the most important things that we can teach young men. And that has to be, Really, to be teaching that to young men has to be taught by men to young men. Not 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 a theoretical idea of what your idea of leadership and and there's there's some certain attributes about leadership that I think is is paramount. I think that that on on, when it comes to leadership, um, there's there's tons of examples of different types of leadership, but I think the one most proper type of leadership. Is is a sacrificial leader, like someone who is leading that is truly leading from the front, not from a desk, but that is truly leading from in front, can really inspire other people. And it has to be done. That's why I started this question, right? Is that in order to lead from the front, be led, you know, you look at like you look at Stalin or you look at any of the tyrants in the past, they don't, they didn't lead from the front. You saw like George Washington, like my favorite picture is the one of George Washington crossing the Delaware at the front of the vote, right? And leadership done well, that's who started and led our country was leadership done well from the front, right? And in order to do that from the front, you have to be inspired yourself as a leader by doing the right things and, and knowing what our country stood for at those times gave you the opportunity to lead. You weren't a leader that stood back and, you know, you know, sent, sent the guys out. Like you were the one, were one of those guys that led from the front and you lead from the front now and teaching that, but it's from experience and like from hard experience from seeing things from a, from a point of view of not just, you know, what we can glorify as far as um, you know, the, in, in the cool part of the firefight, but the, the shitty part of the firefight too, the, where you have brothers that are, you know, hurt that you're dragging guys out, that there's a reality and a cost, man, I think that's one thing that we're missing is the understanding, the cost of freedom right now. And you, you know, you, you've, you've given, uh, and not to belittle what you've done, you've done, but there's other guys that have given the ultimate cost for freedom. And those were some of your friends. And that's the part that, like in you know i think that's something that we're losing out and we're not realizing that freedom comes at a cost and that cost is blood and giving it back up is easy but you're not going to get it back out or back again without that same same bloodshed it's proven throughout history that it's the same thing so like i think that's one thing that i know you're doing leadership training now um so when you have these guys that are coming in I, you use that experience, you know, to, to lead those guys and, and give them some, you know, advice from a front, you know, some, from somebody that saw it from the front. Uh, so, so how do you, what are you, what are you doing now with that? As far as like, cause you still do a bunch of other stuff. You do leadership from a whole different, you know, a bunch of different avenues. Yeah. So
1: on the topic of leadership, um, uh, this is what, what I was going to earlier was, um, so, you know, you're right. I used to lead young guys and mentor them, and encourage them, and show them the way to to be a you know, patriotic American. You know, all these things that I actually believed in. To suddenly, yeah. I hit the brakes. Go, wait a minute. You know, and so the fall of Kabul was a was an eye opener for me. It's like again, because this happened in Mogadishu. Okay, we went there. We went on the. We went to go find a deed. Go get a deed. We get. We lost a bunch of men okay including six delta force operators um 77 wounded, and uh and then you know our illustrious president at time bill clinton you know decided you know we're gonna pull out we're gonna go home with all our stuff and it's like wait a minute we never accomplished the mission and as a soldier we are expected to accomplish missing, and we expect our leadership to do the same thing to have the same yeah. resolve. suddenly a bunch of men are dead and wounded for life okay um and for what? For a nothing. Nothing came from that. Nothing. Show. Tell me one thing that came out of there that was positive. Nothing positive came from that. A lot of dead men, broken families. Moving on forward. Last year, in, you know, in Powell, we saw the same thing happen again. All these men and women that have died all these years fighting a global war on terror in Afghanistan for not. It wasn't because of Osama bin Laden. We killed him a long time ago. We could have killed him even longer, longer than that. Right. Suddenly, we have more dead bodies, and you know, in the last day, and the entire time we're there. And why did they die? What came? What positive thing came out of that? Nothing. Zero. You think killing Osama bin Laden has changed the face of terrorism? Absolutely not. Nothing positive came. So we got more dead friends, more dead family members, brothers, sons, daughters. They're dead, and guess what? They're not coming back. So when I see this happening, Okay, I, now what I do is I tell these guys, don't do it. That sounds really bad from a guy like me, but I'm going to be realistic. I'm being a leader now. My leadership right. my leadership instinct is telling me, don't do it. You're a fool. You will die for nothing, for a country that doesn't care about you. These, You think these liberals, these Democrats care about these men? No, they don't. They don't care about any of this. They don't care about freedom because if they did... They'd on themselves and they would go rep- represent our country. They won't do it. So, you know, so you know, that is my that's the cautionary tale I gotta put out there now. Is like, you know what? And I and I and I tell men and women, I don't have a lot of women followers, young men, actually older men and young men, men of all ages follow me. And I tell them all, be a sovereign man so that you're not codependent on a government, on an administration. That's got control of your life, your money, your sovereignty. Try to divorce yourself from that and be as independent as you can. Um, because they're gonna take, 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 take. So my my whole opinion as a, as an American on a patriotic at a patriotic time like this is I have no patriotism left for this country. Um I haven't because it's been destroyed. It's been destroyed terribly by the left. And and sadly. The you know, the silent majority has allowed this. The asylum I, yeah, majority I agree. Has, has allowed this, right? The squeaky wheel got over Greece and they thought, well, we'll just vote them out. Nothing happened. How'd that work out? It didn't work out. But moving on to the, you know, I want to expand on the leadership piece of it. So, um, getting away from this political part of it, you know, my perspective <laughs> yeah. on it, because it just makes my blood boil. I'm talking yeah, about I'm to. now from, from Bali, Indonesia. I actually I live here i have a home here i'm in my office right now my company um i do have a home in florida and have a business there i actually have a home in, in the philippines as well but uh but here i'm living in a world where you know nobody's eating out of each other's rice bowl nobody's mad because the guy next door has got a little bit more than you um you know nobody's you know nobody's paying attention to all this crazy stuff will pay attention to america it means nothing right? people get along here I, if you went down a road here, about a um, about a mile from here, there's a um, there are there's a there's a Catholic no, a Protestant church, there's a Buddhist temple, there's a Hindu temple, um, and there's a, a Chi, uh, Buddhist Hindu uh, Protestant and Muslim four four different temples or churches all side by side right next to each other. I mean, all in a row in one in one, one plaza. And and everybody goes there to worship to the with the respective religion and there's no you know there's no fighting and arguing and, and you know giving each other a stink guy everybody just gets along they don't care about the religious differences they go do their thing right um, what a different world and I'm very comfortable here because of that it's like it's a it's a really a nice relief of love. From
0: all the you know it that's that's been proven throughout history too that that any tyrant or any any person is trying to overthrow something one of the things that they do along with you know several things is um is they weaponize religion you know yeah. it's it's oh, yeah. and it's and there's yeah yeah i mean you can you can screw around with any of that stuff and you know make it come out to whatever you want you know and it's and the really, the really, the crazy part about it is it all comes down to, you know, the heart of man, the man, the heart of man is, you know, kind of crappy anyhow. If you don't re- recognize the fact that, you know, d- deep down, we're all kind of self-serving or all kind of, you know, crap at the beginning, instead of sitting around and look, the world's telling everybody that, you know, you're all good, you're all good. And it's, you deserve and you deserve, you don't deserve shit. You know, what you do deserve is, you know, a bunch of crap, because that's about what most of us are at the basis of it and and you know i think that's the craziest part of people don't like nowadays truth's not talked to these young men that there was a reason why it wasn't for religious purposes that there was a reason why we had a country that was founded on in god we trust you know and the reason why for it being in god we trust not not anything but god right was because there has to be a foundation for morality morality is not if you go subjective with our morality and go well you know what's good for you is good for you, and this is the lie that they're they're all telling. Is what's good for you is good for you, and you do you, and I'll do me. Well, yeah. that's all great and fine until what good for me is I take your shit. You know, yeah. then that doesn't work out anymore. Yeah. So, um,
1: so on a on a different note, I guess. Um, so, he, so something a little bit more motivating, inspiring. I want to share with you about leadership, right? So, um, I want to tell a story about. My experience with leadership as a kid, okay, from a mentor, which happened to be my father. So here's the problem we have in America, maybe even the world, but mostly I'm going to talk about America is we, for the most part, a lot of families don't have a father. And, you know, look, the divorce is rampant. Every, look, I've been divorced more than once. um It is what it is. It's, a, you know, it is a sign of the time. Um, you know, I make all excuses I want. doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, you know, I have left my children without a father. Well, actually, their mothers have because, um, it's a, you know, it takes two to tangle, I suppose. But anyways, um, but what I have made sure that I've done, that I always do, is make sure I still stay connected closely with my kids. I still maintain a home in Florida just for my 13-year-old daughter. I mean, when I come back, we have a place to live. It's called home. Um, and I come back only because of her. Um, When I say, come back, i come back to Bali. So I'll fly back home for a few months, come back over here for a little while, go back over there for a few months. In fact, I was home for 14 months. Uh, I just got back to Bali. I'll be here until a couple of weeks and heading back home. But anyways, on leaders, on the note of leadership, um, here's what I want to tell people. Fathers are important. Mentors are important. Um, You're right. It takes a man to lead a man. It takes a man to lead a boy. Okay, Inherently, we have different traits. We have different experiences. Some of us just innate. Okay. They've done the studies and experiments where they're like, you know, um, you know, they give the boy, you know, a Barbie doll to play with, they give the girls G.I. Joe dolls to play with, and ultimately the, the boy gravitates back to G.I. Joe, and he's and he's even though you don't have a gun, he's fabricating guns, he's got yep. this warrior hunter mindset because that's genetically what we are as men. Yeah. Now, um now my dad and women are nurturers. They always want yeah. to take to the babies and the, and the puppies, and you know, and the nurturing stuff. It's it's an innate thing that, everybody, that some of the people in our society want to deny, right? Um, and it, it, and they tell you to believe the science when they're actually when they're actually not believing the science because the science says otherwise. It's been proven over and over and over. Um, so on a leadership note, so here's a story. My, so my my dad was in the army for 20 years and. One of the things I remember about my father, even growing up, I was about, you know, even at the age of seven, I remember living in Germany. Every day my dad came home, he was a platoon sergeant. Every day he came home in uniform. Back then he had what's called the pickle suits, right? The green, just the green suits, you know? The uh, OG-107s, you know, the Vietnam era suits. uh, I still think those
0: are the best suits.
1: Yeah, the baseball cap, you know, the black combat boots. And uh, he would come home every day from work, and I remember, he would sit down at the, at the dining room table. He had a little shoe box. Uh, you could put your foot on there, and then he would start spit-shining his boots. He didn't brush on it. He spit shine his boots every day. I, that's how I learned how to do it. You know, he'd, he'd warm up the, the shoe polish. Um, he'd take a a, a a diaper, you know, wrap around his fingers, spit on it, you know, get some polish on it, and then start polishing the tips. He did that every night, every night. He didn't even take his uniform off. He, he did his boots first. Priorities of work. He priorities mm. work for the next day as soon as he came home. Once he got that all done, then it was okay, dinner time, relax, whatever. Um, one day I remember sitting at the kitchen table with him while he's polishing his boots. Um, it was almost a ritual. I guess I was waiting for him to hurry up and polish his boots so we could eat. <laughs> like, come on, dad, hurry up. And uh, <laughs> so uh, my dad asked me a question. And he goes, son, he goes, he goes, let me ask you a question. Imagine you have a platoon in front of you, you know, soldiers. And he says behind you, you have a chain, link, a 10 foot high chain link fence, uh compound. Let's just say it's you know 25 feet by or 25 meters by 25 meters square, and it's got barbed wire on, it's got concrete on the bottom, so you just can't crawl under it. It's got the late gates locked. He goes, you know, you got razor tape on the top. He goes, How would you get your platoon, all of your all members of your platoon from the formation area inside that chain link box? How do you get them over there? What would you do? And so, you know, as a young 7 year old kid, I'm thinking about it, I'm like, well, we could try parachutes. No, that's not practical. We could try health. No. No. Know. You, know, you know, catapult. No. So, you know, I'm going through all these, you know, these options and nothing's working out. And I look at it and probably dump down I go, I don't know. And uh, my dad goes, it's simple. He goes, basically, you call your platoon to attention, right? And you tell your platoon to fall out and fall in on the other side of that chain effect. And I go, that's genius. <laughs> because <laughs> I said, you don't have to do anything. You leave it up to them. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, and so that's actually a leadership trait because you can't, you in order to develop leaders, you've got to make leaders think, right? And yeah. solve, you know, solve problems. And so um, and that's what he did, basically he said, I'm gonna leave it up to you guys. Meet me on the side of the chain fence when you get there, you know, and so now the platoon, it's up to them to figure out how are they gonna do it. You know, and so that was my first leadership challenge, if you will. And it was for my father at a very young age. And I've never forgotten that. Here I am wow. 52 years later. Okay. I still remember that conversation at the kitchen table. And I was really, you know, wowed by that. It's like, that's freaking genius, dad. You know, it was like the simplest yeah. answer in the world,
0: you know? And, uh, and so it's so true though. It's that's yeah. so true. Yeah.
1: Uh, and my dad going on in life, right? So I learned a lot from my father, man. I was, you know, I love my father. You know, he's gone. He's been gone now for 10 years, but uh, um, he was my mentor. He was my leader. Um, this guy was awesome, man. And he wasn't a big man. He's actually a very small man, but uh, he had a big heart, you know, and uh, he had very strong, powerful leadership traits, qualities that made him a giant among men um, because of the way he thinks, you know. He was the guy that you know. You've seen the videos. You know they throw the little the little cocker spaniel in there with the, you know a pride alliance, and the little cocker spaniel is running the show, right? Because he's like he's intelligence, you know. And uh, and that's who my dad was, man. And so moving on later on in life, so that was the first lesson of, from about leadership I learned. And that was from my father. The last lesson I learned about leadership was after my father died. And it was the most important lesson I've ever learned in my life. Was from my father after he died. I learned this lesson, okay. And here's this. And here's the story. So, okay. So I'm gonna give you kind of a, the, a little bit of a longer version of it. I think it's kind of important for context uh, for everybody. That yeah. To listen. So, my dad called me. He was um, seventy years, seventy-one years old, and I uh, said, "Son, I got cancer, stomach cancer." Like we were shocked, right? Nobody gets cancer in my family. But my dad had stomach yeah. cancer, very radical, very aggressive cancer. Um, and so I was confident enough. I said, don't worry, Dad. You're not going to die. I'm going to help you survive this, right? And uh, I really believe that could help him survive with my background. So um, I remember, you know, we had some conversation, long conversations. And finally, um, so when the diagnosis first happened, it was like in November. I believe it was April. Uh, no, March, when he got the surgery after chemotherapy. They removed two-thirds of his stomach. Uh, he recovered from all of that within three weeks. He was four weeks, he was good as new. Um, you know, he was happy to be alive. And then all of a sudden um he came down to a really bad lung infection, which is within 24 hours resulted in a bad heart attack. Um and what I believe happened was the surgery, the stress, the chemotherapy compromised his immune system, left him exposed to a, a lung virus um, infection. And uh so he spent the next four months in the ICU. Um And he was just just falling apart he was just going downhill i mean he had tubes running out of his entire body you know ivs he had it finally ended up getting a tracheotomy you know and they they put a breathing tube into him he had a mask on he had uh catheters (sighs) catheters that was bad right and uh and so the lung infection wasn't uh, abating at all so i remember for those four months um i never left my father's side i lived in florida but i came to north carolina and I basically, you know, I spent every day, 24 hours a day with my father. You know, I slept in, this, in the same room when they gave me a bed, you know, and I just stayed there with my dad the entire time. Other than for an hour or two, I need to go, you know, go shower, you know, go get some more, you know, groceries or whatever, you know, regroup. But I never really left my dad alone. Usually, When I left, it was usually my mom was there or somebody else. There. But I vowed that no matter what, my father would never be alone, nor would he ever die alone. Um, you know, that was gonna make sure that. And so, yeah. this is the soldier in me, man, because, you know, I've held men in my arms that have died in my arms. I was the last person to hold them, the last person, you know. And, um, uh-huh. you know, and, and all I could do is see them out with some comfort, you know, and hope that, you know, it eases the pain on the way out. And that's why I thought about my dad as well. You know, it's like, you know, he deserves that. And no, no way should anybody leave him alone. Um, he needs us there, for final hours, to encourage him to live, but also to comfort him, you know, as well. So he finally passed away. Um, and uh, like I said, it was a long, miserable four months. Um, he gave it the good fight, you know. And so finally, we had the memorial service at the church. Um, actually, had the twenty-one gun salute. I had the honor guard there. My father was a veteran, so they brought in the color guard in there, the uh, honor guard. Um, all that you know I make sure my father got a formal military burial and everything he goes that he deserved to go along with he's a Vietnam veteran, et cetera and um, and I remember the preacher um, asked me if I wanted to come to the front of you know and say a few words and I just could not get out of that seat. I was so choked up. I was yeah. so heartbroken you know this is my mentor my leader was gone. As much as I wanted to go up there, I knew that I would just sit up there and just start bawling like a baby. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and I just couldn't do it, right? And I, to this day, I still feel bad about that, but I know who I am. And as tough as some people think I am, there's a, there's a weak spot, you know? And uh, I am a sensitive guy when it comes to my family and people that are good people. You know, I, I do have compassion. Um, and that's why I think maybe it's because I do have compassion for good people and the innocent people that I'm such a ferocious fighter. I don't care about killing bad guys. I do it all day long with with a smile on my face, you know? And so, so when it was all over, the memorial service is over, you know, everybody's kind of standing around, you know, shaking hands, you know, hugging and stuff. This woman walks up to my mother and I and she introduces herself as a nurse. We don't know who she is. And she goes, I'd like to have a word with you, too, if it's okay. I'm like, all right. So she takes us off to the side, and she goes, I know your father. I read the newspaper he had passed away, and that's why I'm here today. He goes, but more importantly, I came here for you because I wanted to share something with you that you probably are not aware of. I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) <laughs> what did you know? <laughs> we had a very <laughs> are, are you my bad. sister now or yeah, yeah, exactly? You know, like you're the other woman, I don't know. You're just gonna, come, you're gonna come out of her mouth. I'm like, oh my god, here we go. And uh and she's like, no, she goes, I'm a nurse at a nursing home. And and for the last several years, like five, six, seven years now, um, she told us that my father would come by this nursing home every day. For about an hour, an hour and a half, he would bring flowers and candy and gifts from one old, old lady that had no family, nobody. She had nobody in her world. She lived in this nursing home all alone. And my dad would come there every day just to see her and give her gifts and sit down with her and just shoot the shit and just talk about whatever. Give her some company every day. You know, he made her feel like, wow there's someone out there that actually cares about me. Cares? You know? yeah. And you know she was, old, she was very old, you know, and my dad and never told anybody. My Nobody knew this was going on except for the nurse. She was the only one because she saw him coming in every day. And so nobody knew this was happening ever. And until the nurse told us, and I gotta tell you, man, I was stunned. I thought that was the most awesome thing I've ever heard in my life. I was like, wow. This man, this is the most selfless act I can think of. This guy did something and never told anybody because he didn't want us to pat him on his back. We didn't he didn't want, you know, our, uh, you know, our affirmations and, you know, and, and all those things. He mm-hmm. wanted to do this from his heart because that's what he wanted to do. And so that's that is leadership, man. That is that was mm-hmm. the ultimate lesson for my dad. On well, leadership. And I got that lesson after he passed away. I've never forgotten that. And I keep every day thinking, how can I at least, how can I rise to that level? What can I do you know, to be on that level? Uh, and so um, for me, it's been very inspiring. And my dad, to this day, is still inspiring. Why? He's my father. He's a leader. He mentored me. He raised me to be the guy I am. There's people out there that maybe think I'm a turd, especially on the left. I get beat up by the pacifist and the and the lefties all the time. And I really don't even care about them. Right. um They don't matter to me. They're not important, but they see me as something different. You know, I got called out, you know, a guy tried to call me a hit man and this, you're just a hit man. And blah, 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 blah. I'm like, yeah, you know what? The guys I hit were all terrorists and they were to cut your damn head off. So, you know, you can thank me I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah. I hit people. I hit them with lead gloves, man. And put them down all day long. But you're gonna have that. And I don't care about them. What I wanna do, and I'm not, and I don't try, I'm not gonna to try to convert anybody because most people are lost cause anyways. All I wanna do is encourage, empower, embolden like-minded people like me, like us, to be better, particularly young men and women, to be bigger, better, stronger, lead by example. This is what's gonna save America. This is what's mm-hmm. gonna keep us alive, man. Is that this it's that same leadership mindset mentality that got us through the West, man? It got us through everything we went through, the, you know, the pioneers and everything we are where we are today. It's that mindset. It wasn't liberalism and all this other passive bullshit that got us through the you know the frontiers and the mm-hmm. wars and everything that we've gone through to become America. It was leadership and it was right, it was men. It was men that led the way. Okay, and so look, that's not discounting women because we have gender roles. We have roles. I know that hurts people Oh my God, gender roles, that's so misogynist. Well, let's be real. I live in Asia. Okay, there are gender roles and it works here. Men are men, women are men, and women. And we, and we have different roles, but it works because we're a team. We work together for the common goal, the common good, our children, you know, everything. And so there are roles. And we had roles. We've always had roles up to a point where now you have feminists trying to destroy that. You know, we've now we've gone from, you know, you've got men taking, you know, cutting their off and taking hormones and calling themselves chicks and competing against, competing against legitimate women. Or they can't even define well, women anymore.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what's you know? really funny about that is what's, what really cracks me up about that is that, you know, there that's, that's something where, you know, everybody's like, you know, oh, we were we were really big pushing you know women and getting women and show and showing that they had you know they were just of the same equal importance which they are I mean obviously all of us came from a woman I mean i'm I'm very you know thankful for my mother I'm thankful for my wife and the mother of my children and all that kind of stuff and and that's great right I mean but what's really cr- cracks me up is now that um men are can be better women than women can now <laughs> that's what we're praising is that kind of silly shit you know, I think it's really odd that we can um, that it's that people take our role as a man, right, and look at it as it's an affront to somebody else's role, and and where instead we should be taking and and really raising up the importance of mothers, right, and the important role of a woman in society and how much they contribute. And that how much it complements it in a good relationship between men. I mean, there's a, there's a need, there's a need for, you know, as much as, as much as I am, you know, conservative and as much as I am, you know, all for the male and uh, to- toxic man, <laughs> male or whatever that they want to look at it, you know, the provider and the defender, I, I, because that's what I am. Right but at the same time i know that there's another role that that complements that, that that it's it's the way our country was founded is on checks and balances right but instead you know we we have taken and and now we're glorifying the fringe you know we're glorifying and raising to the greatest extent of of what's so important the 7% of of our society and not that i can't look at them and go you know you don't belong you do but in 7%, right? I mean you're not nowhere have we looked back throughout history of, of the world that that was a leadership role. That was not what you know you see if once that steps into the bounds of being a leadership role that actually becomes the downfall of a society. Yeah. You know, it when society's led by 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 that example, you see the great things in history that rise up whenever it's, you know, when our roles are appropriate, you know, there's a design to everything. You can't sit back and look at it and not see throughout history that there's been a design with the way that everything's done. And when the design, when the, when it's, you know, according to the design, you know, things start to flourish, you know, yeah. things do and work well.
1: So let me, let me give you another little story about leadership. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, um, this is Bali. I'm in my office here in Bali. Um, my wife yeah. and I started this company. Uh, honestly, you know, and she, she admitted, I started the company because nobody knew anything about the business that we're in. Um, but what I did is I took on the role as a leader, and the first thing I had to do. So let me explain what kind of company it is. First of all, it's a security company, yeah. uh, and we have we provide explosive detector dogs, narcotic detector dogs, patrol attack dogs for Marriott properties, for all the local hotels and venues in the in the Bali area. Um, so we, you know conceptually, I was like, hey, this is what I want to do, um, and so I realized I'm the only guy that knows how to do this thing, the only guy knows how to train the dogs, everything, right, so what the first step I was, I had to take was, um, you're going to love this story, because if you look to my rear here, you see that picture on the wall, that's my wife over there, okay, um, so, And my wife has no problem with saying any of this. Uh, My wife is a village girl. She's got a sixth grade education at six. Okay. Um, That's as good as it gets. And when you start looking down on her, just remember this. My wife speaks six languages to include Cantonese and Mandarin, Chinese, old Chinese, uh, Bahasa, Sudanese, and English. All right. Self-taught and very fluent at it. Okay. Yeah. So this is a sixth grader with that that capability. Um, She grew up in in the circumstances that didn't allow her to grow, to be all she could be. She's a village girl. She ended up growing in a village and ended up working as a maid to try to make ends meet for other, she worked for 13 years between Singapore, Taiwan, and Hong Kong as as a maid. Um, And and so she and I have been together since uh, end of 2014, 2015. Um, We've been married for several years now. And when we started this company five years ago, in fact, here in Bali, um, she had no idea how to turn her computer. She never had a need to turn on a computer. She no knew nothing about how the hell you turn the computer on. What is this thing? Mean? Right? So I, so now she runs a MacBook Pro, runs Excel spreadsheets, Word documents, everything. Um, so I trained her that aspect of it. Then between the two of us, um, we're in a place right now where she literally runs the entire company. She does all the licensing. She does all the payroll. She does all the recruiting and hiring. She does everything to include training dogs for exposing narcotics and work, training 65 men, 65 men, all right, to handle dogs. Okay, she is the boss. We call her. They call her Boss Canine. The police call her Boss Canine in this area, right? Uh, and so, and she's very small. She's you know ninety pounds, five foot tall, and uh, but she's the she's the cocker spaniel I mentioned earlier in the in the dental line, yeah. right? So, um, and so, so here's a woman that literally runs everything, and I don't do anything. Really, well, tomorrow I'm going to go take some classes to some local security guards. Um, and Friday, I'm gonna do handler training for security guards on the on the canines. But uh, we run a pretty good, a pretty robust business. Um, we got we got sidelined for COVID a little bit, but uh, we're 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 back into you know running again. So I did a podcast, I think a week or so ago, um, another one, and I was looking at some of the comments on the podcast and, and on YouTube, and somebody goes. Why does Dale have a picture of himself in the background? See that one right there, and so and so, you know, like like implying I'm some kind of like I'm vain, and so. But what they didn't notice was why does the guy, why does Comstock have you know pictures of this woman up here? Or hey, how about that dog biting him in the arm? Okay, so the reason it's up there is because this office doesn't belong to just me; it belongs to my wife, and my wife. Because she loves me so much, she puts pictures of me up, I put pictures of her up, and we put pictures of our machines up, our canines, right? And so um, and so, it's because we love each other that we do that, okay? And guess what? She's still at home, like right now, she's at home taking care of the kids. She, t- She, look, she feeds me every day. She does everything every day as a woman, and she runs a business, and I do my part. I run the business. I actually run several businesses. Um, but we she understand she, she doesn't let me clean, she doesn't let me wash dishes, she won't let me cook, because that's that's not that's in violation of her responsibility as she sees it. It's a cultural thing for her. I get it. Um just like I don't want her own, you know, five foot body, 90 pounds, to defend this 215-pound guy, right? It's like right. I got my role, you got your role, <clears throat> okay? And so, so this is, again, now we're, we're talking talk about leadership.
0: And it's, and the crazy part about it is, is, it's not, it's not something that, you know, when somebody takes pride in what they're doing and, and is, is honored for who they are, right. That, you know, your wife isn't like belittled because she's doing that. She it's, it's a, it's actually the roles are done properly in a sense that, you know, she's doing what she's good at and, and you're, you it. know, you're doing, yeah, like, why not? I don't She's understand
1: it. it. She's very proud of it. She's so proud that she can take care of me. It's the most amazing thing ever. She, I mean, there's nothing she won't do for me. I mean, it's like at my back. And I don't ask her to do anything. I just, so the soldier in me, I'm the guy that wants to iron his own clothes, wash his own clothes, wash his own dishes, because that's what I've always been taught to. And it's been a hard transition for me to just, okay, okay, you, you go ahead and do this if that's what you want. And now it's, yeah. it's, it's like that, right? And I do appreciate that, because um, I do work very hard, but so does she. But we have diff- we have dual responsibilities. But because of yeah. that, we're a team. We're an effective team. But we're still two exactly. individuals with two different gender roles, and we make it work. And it's not just me. It's really the culture, particularly the, the Asian culture here. Um, it's like that. So um, we've, strayed, we've strayed very far from that in America. Um, now you really we have. have. Yeah, women think they're dudes. They think, you know, we're all equal. Look, here's another news flash. We are not all equal. I don't care how many times you say we're equal, we're not equal. I can go down the list why we're all different. You know what's even yeah. funnier is, you know, everybody wants equality. We're all equal. But yet we want to call African-Americans African-Americans. Are they American or the African-Americans? You know, and so what they're saying is, I want you to call me something different. So you want me to call you something different. So you want me to view you as something different. And then you're going to be mad because I might treat you as something different. Right? It's, yeah. and, and so they want it both ways. Okay? But you, And I'm not just picking on African-Americans. And so anybody thinks I'm a racist, no. My wife's a Muslim. She's Asian. My kids are, I got three black kids. I'm a black wife. Okay, I got, a, I got a Hispanic wife or an ex-Hispanic wife and daughter. I go on all day long. Okay? I'm not, I'm the last guy that's racist. All I do is I call it out the way I see it. OK, that's yeah. it. I'm not afraid of the bullshit political correctness. I call it the way I see it, um, but it is what it is. So if we're all going to be equal, let's just all call ourselves Americans. OK, and let's exactly. stop add the, you know, let's stop adding the other actions out in front of it. Um, let's just be all Americans. So let's stop trying to be different and then expect to be treated the same. But we're, we're long beyond that. We're, we're not we're long. We're not going back. OK, we've gone mm-hmm. way. We're down that road. Um, there's no turnaround on it, so you know, like I said earlier, um, the best we can hope for is that uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna change the minds of the opposition. They're they've already bought into the lie. You know, I think I mentioned this to you before. It was Adolf Hitler, I believe, or Joseph Joseph Mengele, one of those two from the, from the Nazis. that said if you repeat a lie, a lie enough times, usually within ninety days, people will believe it as the truth in spite of the truth hitting them in the face. Right? They'll they'll yep. come in. Um, here we are. We're we're living that light, right? You and I are toxic white men. Okay, for everything we got, we didn't earn it. Okay, we took it from somebody else. That's you know, we just, and it never ends. Even though you know, we, we can show we earned everything we got. We actually made the sacrifice, right? And uh, it doesn't matter because it's a it's really um, I believe it's called massive hypnosis psychosis. It's a, a psyops term in the military, right? Um, basically. Yeah. Way of indoctrinating people into a certain mindset through repetition, okay, and by exposure, and over time, people will believe it because Start okay, to they won't. It. Well, they won't. They won't use critical thinking skills. All right, use their own due diligence to analyze something for its veracity: is it true or is it not true? They just go along with the figures of authority out there, which is your TV set and CNN, right? I mean, look, they got this. Is why the media. Um, the media really controls everybody because everybody's fixated on this little box in front of us and whatever comes out of it, most people will buy into it. Why? Because they figure the guy sitting on the other side of that screen, screen, that journalist is a professional, his job is doing investigative work and in accuracy when in fact they fail to understand that guy's a person who's either, who's also got, um, you know, who's got opinions that are probably skewed one way or the other. And he's he's going to make sure that he peppers his his, uh, opinion with his bullshit, with his propaganda that he wants you to buy into. Moreover, we look at the government as, you know, as omniscient, all-powerful. They know everything. They're powerful because it's the government. And so it's like Mark Twain said, most people, almost all people... Will basically surrender their responsibility to figures of authority, to the government, to others, because most people are afraid of responsibility. They're afraid of thinking for themselves. They're afraid of doing their own critical thinking. They don't want that responsibility because what if you arrive at the conclusion, go, "Shit, I was wrong." Now that means you got to fix your behavior. That means you. Then what is your behavior? It's a lot of things, man. Your behavior is your personality, the things you do, the way you think, and people don't want to do that because they're in their comfort zone. So, you know, so we, I call it avoid, we avoid the truth. All right. We avoid the truth so we don't have to deal with it. And we can always go, um, you know, look, it's the government that said this. We absolve our responsibility. But go, it's the government said this. The news said this. I don't have to think about this. You know, they're taking care of me. And here's, that's the danger of this thing. And this is why. What we've got to do is train people to think like leaders, not followers. Yeah. That's what man, we to you're exactly like right. Leaders, right? Yeah. Because what I they're doing is they're where... training followers. They're training followers is what they're doing. They're using propaganda to inculcate followers to to follow along and, and basically, you know, you know, push the narrative. When you know, there's so... there's a few a few leaders out there that will stand against it, but we're we're way outnumbered. We're way yeah. outnumbered.
0: I... I think that's where I I think that's where we have to look at leadership as probably one of the most important things, and in starting that leadership um, context of fathers, like I think that you know bringing back the importance that you know we we've taken the power away from all this stuff, and we've given so much to the media, and the media, you know, the thing is. The media can talk and give all kinds of propaganda all they want to, I mean, all the bullshit that they're putting out, right? And, and it's not gonna phase me. Like you're not changing me and you're not uh-huh. giving me a line of bullshit that I'm gonna read into it. But my teenage boys, if I left them to that boob tube to let that talking head go and influence them with what reality is or give them a view of the world that's different, then that's where I'm gonna lose. Like, that's where we're going to lose this, where we've lost it, right? Is we turned our kids over to, you know, watching the TV and, and listening to what, you know, the propaganda is on TV or looking at their phones and staring at their phones now. And that is where they're getting their information. That's where they're getting their truth from instead of, you know, where the man is, it, your, your father is out there. I mean, I, I can't tell you how important it was that my dad had me out there. And as much as I hated it at the time and didn't, I was a lazy, skinny little shit too, right? And I was, you know, more than willing to sit back and do something else besides go to work. And he dragged me out there and had me working and doing stuff. And I'd complain, but I did it. And that gave me the work ethic that I have now. My boys, I go out and they're digging fence post holes and whatever else that I've got them out there doing. That is leadership. They hate it, right? I mean, I get it. They sit out there and I know they get in the. There's times when they, you know, I tell them to do stuff and they go in their bedroom and scream into their pillow going, I hate him. You know, he just... They can be mad or whatever, but you know what? That's what we did when we were boys, and that's what is you challenging authority. But you have to understand, even when you're challenging, there's prices to pay for that. But in the process of doing that, because I step into their lives and I spend time in there in with them, it's the same thing as leadership where you're not leading from back here going, you guys go do this and figure it out, but that you're stepping into leadership and you're you're spending time with your boys and with your kids that, you know, that's where they're going to learn and they're going to get those values and the same kind of, of of understanding of truth because they've living through truth. Well, I I just, so one of the things that I think is really kind of cool that looking through some of your stuff is like that, um, I guess back in your forties or so you and your son did bodybuilding together and, and, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, it was impactful, I'm sure for you, but God, can you imagine how impactful for the young man growing up that, you know, well, worse yet that you beat him, <laughs> but yeah. that, that you, that you spent the time doing that together. I remember my dad, I told, I remember uh, kind of funny short story of my dad. Um, I, I was in uh, high school and I was, and I was really skinny and I really wanted to get, you know, where I could bulk up and and, um, my dad I told my dad, I sat down with him. me and my dad are really good friends and he was actually my best man in my wedding. Right. And, um, and we were, I, I come home and I told him, I said, you know, I, I I, don't, I need to, I need to get bigger. I'm just skinny and I can't, I'm having a hard time. I think what I'm going to do is I think I'm going to take a, a cycle of steroids. I want to do one cycle. I've been reading on it. It's not going to hurt. I'll do a certain deal and whatever else. And, and my dad, his activity at the time, right. He'd kind of slowed down and wasn't doing a whole lot his biggest activity was they played, they bowl, they bowl in nine old German nine pin bowling alley. Right. And he had enough of a belly. He could set his beer on, the, on his own, his own, his little belly right there for a while. Well, um, he goes, that whenever I said that he, instead of saying, well, you know, and talking to me about it, he says, well, I guess I got to help you out on that. And he went and he joined the gym with me and we started working out together. And by the end of the year, he was running five ks and I was lifting weights and he was like, I'm going to show you. And he stuffed me with more bananas and peanut butter and shit trying to get me to gain weight than a man in the moon. Right. But he stepped into my life. Right. He yeah. didn't just sit back and tell me how to do something. He stepped into it and he did it. And that had to have been a cool experience for you and your son.
1: Yeah. How, how old are your kids now your boys now?
0: Uh, I'm my uh, my youngest boy's 13. My oldest boy's 15. I got an 11, 13, 14 and 15 year old.
1: Yeah. Okay. so, um, you know, as you know, we know that I'm a performance coach. Right. So I coach um, I coach my demographics. I have three different primary demographics, men between 45 and 59 under me. For coaching basically, I call them the old man clan we try to recapture and recover their wife. The kids gone to college, the wife won't talk to them, they look in the mirror, they're nine months pregnant. You know, like, please, Dale, help. I want to live like you, right? I'm 59 years yeah. old and I'm living the dream. Um, and then I have another demographic of men between 33 and 37, these tend to be entrepreneurs, some are veterans, some are not. They're more interested in learning my mindset about business development. And then the other yeah. group are men, young men from 19 to 26, and these guys have come to me that are in military or want to go into the military and one of those special operations, special forces, rangers, those types of things. And they're looking for me to help them get there. So those are the three really the three primary groups that uh, I coach. Um, now, <clears throat> having said all that, so I coach people, and and all my coaching, and this is not a plug for my coaching business, but when I coach, all my coaching is based on science. The science supports my experience. My experience supports the science. Okay, I don't. I don't sit there and make stuff up and speculate. Well, you know that what I tell you is based on science, real science research, it's, right? It, and, and my experience supports it, right? And and they go hand, yeah. hand in hand. And so here's what I have learned. And the reason I asked you how your sons were because I know you've been. You probably had your boys out there, you know, working in the fields a lot younger than that. But here's the thing, and here's the scary part, okay? Between the ages of one and seven, between the ages of one and seven, children are operating between four and eight hertz, okay? It's that a frequency. All right, at that frequency, at that, that mental mindset, if you will, um, it's the same frequency that people go into when they start meditating. All right, four to eight hertz means we are at that range, at that frequency range, we are most susceptible to suggestions. Okay, that is why kids between one and seven learn languages. They learn how to speak all language. They learn how to build computers and games and all this stuff. And you know to go, Jesus Christ, how did they do that? Because yeah. between the, those first seven years are the most impressionable years of our little human lives. And guess what mm-hmm. they're trying to do now on the left? They're trying to brainwash these kids and to believe all this crap about you know transgenderism and all this bullshit is okay because if you can if you can inculcate that mindset in a, in the one to seven years old, they are gonna carry that torch into adulthood. They are gonna be the next you know they're gonna be the next guys that, that lead in this crap right So this is where it starts. Yeah. This is why we as men like you have to take care take a hold of our kids, all of them boys and girls, and be there and metric them. So, um, yep. expanding on that a little bit, um, my son, when he was old enough, and I say, when I mean old enough, I'm not, when my kid was four years old, okay, he said, you know, dad, you know, he was out in the front yard doing karate stuff like the Ninja Turtles, I love the Ninja Turtles. We had a conversation, <laughs> he was interested in karate. I said, all right, here's the deal. If you're gonna, if I'm, if you're gonna go to karate, Here's my rule, here's the rule, you gotta get your black belt. You can't finish until you get a black belt. We agree. Okay, dad. Four yeah. years old now. He's four years old. So I take him to school. Um, and then he's enjoying it, and then the day came, like, I don't want to go, Remember, we gotta do, right? We gotta do. Yeah. It's no it's not an option, you can't quit, you gotta go finish. You gotta if you want to finish the black belt. So by the time he was seven, he got his first degree black belt. Okay, and guess what? When he enrolled at four years old, I'm like, well, damn. If my kid's going to do it, and i got to bring him here in the day, I might as well go do it with him. So I jumped yeah. in there, okay? So to this day, I have basically two six-degree black belts and a first-degree black belt, okay? Uh, and my kid's got his black belts. My daughter's got her brown belts, okay? And so um, I got out there and did it with him. And so then when my kid was around 13, um, I started taking him to the gym with me. Now, he couldn't bench press his own body weight, and he couldn't, you know, I'd run him into the mud. You know, but within six months, here he's running circles around me. I'm, I was a good runner. Uh, and he's lifting his own weight and more. And he's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. When he was 22, I saw a picture of him. I can't remember where it was on Facebook. And I didn't know it, but he had went into a bodybuilding competition. And he looked pretty damn good. He was shredded. And he was built. I mean, holy shit. And I called him up goes, that you? And he, you know, he was embarrassed to tell me because, yeah, you know, that was me, you know, standing up there with a the little skimpy, you know, a <laughs> little banana hammock, you know, between my legs, you know. And, uh, you know, that was kind of embarrassing for him. But I was like, whatever, man. I said, you know, that's no big deal. Um, and so so I thought that was so cool. And at the time, my ex-wife and I were, you know, we were, we're bodybuilders, but we had been going to the gym a lot. We were getting more intrigued by this whole bodybuilding thing. And I made a decision one day. I go, why don't we all just do a bodybuilding competition together? And so we did, I started training in January and look, I was not a bodybuilder, um, not even close. And I started training in earnest. So did my son, so did my wife. We separately train now because I was in Afghanistan and Iraq most of the time. So while I was over there, if I was not shooting bad guys in the face and eating and sleeping, I was working out. And so, um, within seven months, all three of us went to our first bodybuilding show in Orlando. Um, I, my son and I were both mm-hmm. in the heavy, light heavyweight division. Um, we got down, to I think we both got down to like 186, which is pretty good. We we're at 3% body Aye. fat. Uh, you know, normally, I mean, I can get up to about 226. I know my kid can get at least 226 or more. Um, but we both got down to 184, 186 at 3% body Aye. fat. And so we're standing side by side together on the stage. Posing, you know, doing our thing. Now, honestly, I didn't care about winning. I didn't care. All I cared about was that, be I was, there. Enough, that I could be there with my son on the stage, standing yeah. next to him, posing, right, and doing all this stuff. And of course, my wife was in her category. She did her thing. When it was all over, I took fifth place out of the group. My son took six. My wife took six. I'm the only guy to walked away with, with our trophy. And uh, there's actually a funny story to go with that. So up to the up to the the first last 30 days, I'm sorry, um, we got on the, what we call a lean-out diet. It's a very lean, regimented diet to lose all our weight. and just gets as lean as we can, right? And uh, you have to have a lot of discipline. And it's there's small portions sure. of meals throughout, throughout the day. There's no carbohydrates. Well, at least it wasn't for them. I didn't, like I said, I didn't care about not winning so much. I just want to be good enough to go on stage. So they're over there. They're they're strictly on the diet. My wife's cooking everything every day and making all the food. and I'm over there slipping chocolate chip cookies in my mouth. You know, and I got caught. You know, you're not taking this serious. You're not taking this serious. You know, my wife got mad. I'm like, oh no, you know. And uh, and so I'm the guy that walks away with the trophy after eating all the cookies too, right? <laughs> and so we're. We're, we're all walking out, you know. And my, my wife ain't happy. My ex-wife ain't happy. You know, she's pissed. Um, she didn't do better. And I'm eating cookies. I'm the guy with the damn trophy. My son was a little embarrassed, but it wasn't because he wasn't working hard. It was he—he he was actually one day away from being at where he needed to be. Right? He wasn't quite dried out yet. He still carried a little mm-hmm. water. If we had gone one more day, he probably would have beat me. But he didn't. Right? So it was timing for him. He was off. And so we're walking. I'm walking behind my wife with my son. And I looked at him and go, hey, dude, I said, I can't take this trophy when we know that because I'll be sleeping on the couch or in the doghouse or in the garage, but I ain't going to be sleeping with my wife, and I ain't going to be getting no Nookie for a long time. I said, so there's no way this is going wrong with me. I said, I'm going to give this to you. Consider the the trophy of shame because I beat you, right? I'm 47 at the time, 48. He's 22, right? I go, so you let this old man kick your ass out there. I said, so what I want you to do is keep this trophy. And we're going to do another show together. And when that day comes around, I said, I want you to beat me. I want to beat me fair and square and give me my damn trophy back. <laughs> I want my trophy back, but I'm not taking it like this, right? And so that's the deal we had, right? So I'll be 60 next year. Um, I don't know when he and I will do another show together, if we ever do another show together. Um, but I plan on doing another show next uh, next year when I'm 60. I plan on going back out there competing again. Um, so, you know, that was a great experience because, you know, we, we all got involved in this thing. I was involved with my son. Um, you know, so I remember starting with martial arts, then the running, then the weightlifting here we are bodybuilding together. He's 22 years old. I'm 47, you know, and, uh, and I get to win too. Right. And that's what's really cool. Because, and it's not because I want to beat my son. But what I want to do was just mentor him Look, down. That old man yeah. is badass. I want to be like him when I'm 47, you know? Yeah. My last bodybuilding show was 50. I took second place in the heavyweight division, okay? Um, and the only reason I stopped competing is because I had other things I wanted to do, and, you know, I went through some transitions, but I'm not over with it yet. I'm going to get back into it next year. Um, so to mm-hmm. your point, you know, you know, too many guys out there. Um, too many men out there. They they cheat themselves all their lives, right? Because what they do is they it's, okay. It's a noble thing to take care of your family. It's a noble thing to work, um, but it's it's not the right thing to do to neglect yourself, okay? Because all right, I've got I've got friends right now that have died, fathers that have died because they neglected themselves working and not mm-hmm. taking care of themselves. Right. So my question to them, if I could ask them was like, how did that help your family? How did you help your family? Because you're dead now. Right. Sure. So now you've left them out there struggling. Um, and so, you know, you have but-
0: to, you have to take care of yourself too. At the same time, you can't be neglectful of, no. you know, your own stuff. You know, I think one of the things that's such a, 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 an eye opener for that, like one, one of the biggest experiences about, you know, weightlifting Or, you know, or learning a different language or, you know, whatever it is that you're that you're doing, particularly like the physical stuff, because the physical, physical stuff, you know, is such a a, it kind of speaks to men mostly. Right. I mean, it's something that we're kind of innately made and designed to do is to work and work hard and be physical about that stuff. And it's so true in all of in all of creation that. Nothing is gained without struggle. Like you don't learn anything without the struggle. You you don't build muscle without tearing it down. You don't uh, you don't build a fence without sweat. You don't you know. Nothing comes without the struggle. We learn everything that we learn is through adversity. Everything that we learn is through adversity. And and a work ethic. Majority of most all men. Work ethic is something that is taught and learned. You know, we don't, we have desire to sit on your ass and not do anything. But whenever you are forced to like, and you took your son and you go, okay, we, we can, do, you can do that. We can do Taekwondo. But you, when you're doing that, you're going to do it until you get a black belt. When, you know, and if that wasn't the deal, when it got hard, you had a way out. And when you allow that way out, you teach a habit. You teach a, a habit to quit before the, the end is. And if you don't go through that, if you don't have a father that pushes you through it and goes like, no, sorry, you got to show up. You got to show up and you got to get, you know, that's all you got to do is keep showing up. You keep showing up. You're going to end up being there. But by the time you get there, if you don't feel that reward, if you don't feel that like that's such an emotional thing to get a black belt. I mean, when you get a black belt, it is like, you know. I see so many guys that have busted their, you know, in jujitsu. I see so many guys that have, you know, when you see them getting their black belt, how emotional are these big guys that have been like rolling for 10 years and <laughs> going at it to get their black belt. And when they get their black belt, the it's it's an elated feeling. It's the same feeling that you got when, you know, you you got your wings or you got your, your parachute uh, uh, emblem or whatever it was that your SF stuff or any of that stuff. It was just, it, that is of such great value, not because the little, you know, emblem is, is of great value, but you know, the struggle that you went through in order to earn that. And not many men are going to go through that struggle and have experienced that elation elated feeling because they weren't put, they weren't taught that work ethic. They weren't taught that. And and it's so provable in everything that we do that you're not going to get there without the hard work, right? There's gotta be struggle. And if you don't, you're not going to learn, you're not going to grow. It's funny
1: you said that because in my coaching, I always tell people, that uh, anything you do in life that you want to be successful with, at starts, always starts with a struggle. If it didn't, if it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. In fact, only 1% of the population, only 1% self-actualize. In other words, they live the dream. They reach the the pinnacle, the mountaintop of success, where they they would love to have been, they reach it. Only 1%, 99% of people, um, when things get hard, they give up or they try to go, they deviate from the path, And before you know it, they may make it up the mountain a little bit, maybe a little higher than others. Some of them never get out of the valley, but everybody eventually dies somewhere along the ridge line or in the valley of bones with all the other losers. Okay. Because they quit. They always quit. Why? Because they were taught to quit or they were never taught to win. And so this is the, this, this is the problem with society. You know, everybody gets a trophy. So we're not teaching anybody to win. We're teaching everybody you just have to show up and you get some free stuff, right? And so, and this is what happened. This is one of the reasons that, you know, look, the the what I call the downfall of the U.S. military, it started one time ago. It started when I was in. Um, in fact, I would argue it started around the year 2000 is when I saw it starting to collapse, which is what prompted me to retire. And I'll give you a clear example of that. So, on Fort Bragg, I remember uh, USASAC, the United States Army Special Operations Command, they had a uh, ceremony. All the Green Berets were there because USASAC is, you know, the, uh, the headquarters for, uh, for Green Berets. But uh, so General Susecki, who was Secretary of Defense, came down. Now, he was not a Green Beret. He was just a regular, actually a tanker, okay, armored you know, vehicle guy. Um, he shows up with all these Green Berets. He's looking around. He's just in awe at all the Berets. Oh, my God, they're so beautiful. And right there on the spot, he goes, I want everybody in the Army to have a beret. In fact, make it a black beret. And the reason he said I remember black that. beret, the reason he said black beret, because traditionally, you know, tankers tankers would wear black berets, right? And so it's like everybody gets a black beret, everybody feels good about themselves. And they're like, sir, the Rangers already have the black beret. Well, they can you another one. So the Rangers end up going to the brown beret, which was a kick in the balls. Um, and then put the black beret in everybody. Now, here's the thing. So, what he wanted to do, which is totally wrong, he goes, he wanted everybody to feel good about themselves. You get to wear a beret, you get to feel special, but then did get to earn it. That's the point. They didn't get to earn that beret. They all look like shitbirds. They look like pizza hats on their head. They have no pride. It's just a piece of headgear. Head and then, this, then the guys that actually earned it, the Rangers, were like they were stripped. Of that, of that honor, of having earned that black beret, and it would give it a brown beret, basically downgraded from black to brown. You know, it to give you a shit-looking beret, mm-hmm. literally, you know? And so, um, and so, this is when, this is to me, this is when things started to implode, I thought, in the military. And there's a few other things that happened within less than two years while I was there that made me decide, it's time to get out of here, I want no more part of this. And it's gotten, it. you know, it hasn't gotten much better. Um, you know, all we got to do now is look at the leadership all the way at the sec level and, and analyze what happened, for example, last year in Kabul. You know, and this is just insane where we are in the military. But the point I'm trying to really make is, you know, about, you know, what you mentioned a minute ago about, you know, feeling good about yourself and earning something. There's there's a purpose yeah. in that, right? When you earn something, you value it. And not only that you put your best effort forward to get that because if you think something's prestigious, like winning the green beret. Okay. And wearing that special forces tap, okay. wearing that master blast jump wings, all those things that go with that. Okay. It makes you, it makes you strive to be the best you can be because it's, 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 it's attainable, but it's difficult and it's reserved for the best. And any man that's got any testosterone, any pride, is going to want to be the best he can be, okay? And right. so, here's a goal for him. Here's an incentive. Here's the prize for him. We have gotten to into a society where everybody gets a prize. You don't have to work hard. You can feel good about yourself, even though it's a false pride. It's a false sense of success and accomplishment. And and that is why we have such a mediocre society now, at best. Exactly. Uh, and and so, you know, again, it goes back to one thing it's got to go back to i can't let the leadership in the military the government lead my son or daughters for that matter and by the way you know i we mentioned sons a lot um but my oldest child is my daughter, close to 37 now (laughs) but anyway she's actually my business partner um so it's not like i have forsaken her in fact and i think you know she has said it more than once publicly that you know she's you know she respect what I taught her. And in a lot of ways, you know, she's, I think she's thankful for the way I taught her to be the person that she is today, and the success she had. in a lot of ways we're very alike. And, uh, and so it only makes sense that we, we work together on business. Um, so at the end of the day, it comes back to the parents, it comes back to the fathers, even the mothers to, um, to lead and mentor their children. Remember you are a leader. Um, you might be a family, but somebody's got to lead in that family. And uh, and leadership requires setting the example, um, doing the right thing when nobody's looking, um, doing the right thing no matter what, always doing the right yeah. thing, setting moral and ethical standards for, for the rest of your family to follow. That's how you learn. We've lost all that. That's why we've got all these hooligans in society and all this crap going on, because at least half the society... It's just they don't have that. They don't have that regimentation. They don't have that, uh, you know, lead by example uh, mindset. They don't have that parenting. Uh, they don't have, you know, and again, not trying to give kudos to the politicians, but the politicians know how to manipulate the mind. They know how to man- manipulate the dumb masses. They understand the human yep. condition better than anybody. They know if you say the same thing over and over, eventually people will buy, they will believe it. And if you fuck up and you say the wrong thing today, nobody will remember tomorrow. They don't care. Right. And, and, it's, and, I, and I, I'm watching this closer and closer and closer. Uh, and I'm realizing that there's so much truth to that because I look at, you know, these people that are supposed to be stellar examples of leadership. And by the way, no politician's a leader, period, with some exceptions, with some exceptions. OK, there's some exceptions and they tend to be better exceptions, Veterans, um, They're actually leaders. But on the civilian side of the house, I show me one leader. Brian's no leader. He's not a leader. What makes him a leader? Nothing about him is a leader. At best, Nothing. he's the executive manager. At best, right? That's it. Um, but leadership is different, and and it's 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 sorely lacking, and it's and it's not where it needs to be to mentor young people. We have examples of. I, I don't know, I put it out there. For example. Um, What's her bucket? Uh, Pocahontas. Um, I keep calling Pocahontas, but uh, uh, what's her name? Senator. The Senate senator. Um, Trump kept calling Pocahontas. Anyways, she's a white woman Pretend to be an Indian, right? <laughs> no. And, and she, went, she went to college on, on, on minority scholarships, all kinds of shit. Yeah. And she benefited from all okay. this stuff. And it turns out she's, not, she's got no Indian blood in it. It's all bullshit. You know. Then you got you got the uh, the, the other guy. Came, you know, all names me right now. See, I'm a, he's a Vietnam veteran. Vietnam veteran. He's on. Then got called the a ballface lie. He was never in Vietnam. It was all a lie. He's been telling them the same lie all year, and he keeps getting reelected. You know, you got Swalwell from California. This asshole, you know, bed down a Chinese freaking uh, intel agent. You know, and, and I'm sure he's give yeah, all kinds right. of freaking juicy secrets. And this guy's still operating. You know, and so you know, intel in that in that in that realm is good for about 24 hours, and everybody just forgets about it. It's just totally forgotten. Yeah. And so it's because people don't care. Because politicians are smart enough to know people will not pay attention. In fact, go back to the Romans, right? When the Romans, with the Senate saying, hey, "Give them bread, circus, they'll never pay attention to what we're doing up here." And sure enough, they thought, you know, bread, circus, gladiator fights. Everybody was happy campers. Had true. no idea they're getting screwed over by the government until the Roman Empire fell. And that's exactly where we're at today. We are in the final throes, the final throes of America. It's about dead and gone. Um, we're right there on the cusp. We have maybe, you know, one, maybe two chances. One chance is this fall, you know, the the conservatives win the Senate and the House, uh, or at least the Senate. Um, And two, you know, we went back to presidency, you know, in 2024. We can only hope for that because um, otherwise this whole country will be fundamentally different. Um, And and they have done that by manipulating our children in grade school for the last 30 years. Um, That's a fact. Because of what I said earlier, remember, age one to seven, you're most (laughs) impressionable. If if you can pollute those little brains, those little fertile minds with your bullshit, uh, you're going to raise bullshit. That's what they've done. And they've done a pretty good job at it. And it's not it's not a mystery. Look, you know, the Russians have said that. What's the bucket uh, of the Russian uh, politicians? I mean, this is not something that I'm making up. This is this has been on the books for a very long time. This is I share another story with you, man. People think that this is all bullshit. All right. All right. Who do you think owns Hollywood? Who do you think owns most of the production companies out there? Who do you think? You think it's a bunch of old white men, right, with money? No. I'll tell you who it is. It might be white men, all right. But they ain't fuck they ain't from America. They're the Russians and they're the Chinese. They own everything. They bought everything we got. They own shit. They own all our food. They own all our shit in America. People don't realize it.
0: I've seen that. You know, I've seen that. Like, they're, they're this. What all they, the, all the different hands that they've got into our industries, all the different industries, they, they, they're controlling the majority of it. It's but crazy. About,
1: but think about this. If, if, you can control, if you can control television, movies, the media, which is what they're doing, TikTok, who owns TikTok? Chinese. All right. Sure. They own a they own a lot of production companies, movie production companies. So they have a say in what gets produced, what goes into a movie, what doesn't go into a movie. I know all this on, I know this on a firsthand basis, on a professional basis. It's not me reading an article in a newspaper and some guy making a yeah. shit up. I've got I've got a deeper knowledge on this stuff than most will ever know. Okay, and I won't go into it well, and, and,
0: and really has, and really, you've got a, a, a much more of a broad worldly, like, worldly view of you know what the rest of the world is looking like. I mean, I think that's like the same thing of you know most of people nowadays thinking that you know we're, we're I remember a couple of years back, they're all worried about what the rest of the world thought about us and thought about like yeah, you know, what the rest of the world looks at you is like you're a bunch of fumbling idiots. You yeah, know, is what they look really, at uh, the United States as right now. They're they're
1: laughing at us. Here in Indonesia, they're laughing at Joe Biden. You know, what? The Australians are making, I mean, every day the Australians, just their news, man, media is making fun of our president. You know, the whole world thinks this guy's a bumbling idiot, right? And they're scratching their head and go, how do those Americans, how do they vote, how do they create this shit? How do they allow this? Unfortunately, you know what? Sometimes being, you know, a more honorable, Good human being as conservatives, um, we're going to be the quiet, respectful type. You know, the silent majority. We're going to go by. We're going to play by the rules. We'll go to the voting poll. All that bit us in the ass. All that bit us in the ass. All right, we have lost yeah. our ass because we shut our mouths. We thought we're playing by some some rules. If there are no rules. We we just thought there were rules. And we thought we'd play by and be the nice guy. Silent majority. We go vote. You know, it's, there's a system, and that's how we do this. And we got we the system beat us. They beat the system on the other side, and they turned the system against us. Um, you know, so we we have we have screwed ourselves by being Mister Nice Guy. And you know that yep. adage, the nice guy always wins fast, but wins last. Day. true. And we have one. We have come in last again because we're too damn. Mad. We have to go back to what America made America great was in the early days, the in the West. You know, it was the rugged, you know, robust, hardcore men of the time, take no shit, take no prisoners kind of guys that built America and built America to what was one of the greatest militaries in World War II, World War One. I. I mean, throughout history,
0: we've so great
1: the strongest country in the world because of these types of men. And then suddenly, yeah. suddenly there's a paradigm shift and we've turned into a bunch of freaking whiny babies we're losing wars we're losing our ass you know and it's not because the soldiers necessary it's because of politicians no. and the politicians the leadership to the, yeah they've been to the whims of the voters you know am i going to get voted yep. in again if i don't acquiesce
0: to well that or the, whoever's putting their money to and well that and they're bending to the whims of whoever's putting the money in their pocket is what's really the, the shitty part yeah, about it Absolutely, I, man. yeah yeah You've been listening to the Go Time podcast with Todd Martin. If you'd like to know more about the Go Time podcast, Todd Martin or Todd Martin Performance Forces, you can visit us at toddmartin.net. We're going to be putting up some merchandise on there too for the podcast. And also, please, if you get the time and you like it, share with a friend, give us a like and a review. I guess all that stuff kind of really helps and helps us get it out there to more people to be able to enjoy the podcast. So until next time, go tap.